Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics 2021. It still feels quite a lot like 2020, but maybe not for much longer. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. So today, for our first episode for the new year, I'm talking with Helen Thompson, and we're going to try and just look ahead a little bit to some of the big themes coming up. There's a lot going on, as usual. There's a lot going on even this morning. We're going to get to the Georgia Senate results in a bit. We're going to call them as results, even though the votes are still being counted, as they always seem to be. In American politics, maybe they're going to be counted forever. Helen, we haven't spoken. When did we last speak? About three weeks ago, I think. Yeah, you don't. You have not. I'm, not, I'm just not. <laughs> we haven't spoken since the Brexit trade agreement. If that's where you're heading, that is where I'm heading. Yeah, in whatever kind of time we're in now, that's one of the ways we can date it. So we'll start with with Brexit. Of course, we're also in a new lockdown. That's happened since we last spoke. Brexit. Finally, we have a deal. We've been waiting for it for so long. I'm going to ask a couple of questions, and I'm going to say a couple of things that I I feel about it. The main question I have, and it's a genuine question, I've felt this all the way along, and in Boris Johnson's rhetoric, you can sense it nags away at him too. Now that Brexit is, at least in, in terms of this deal, settled, the question then comes, what was it for? And one of the things it has to have been for was to allow Britain to do things differently from the rest of the EU. And Johnson has been trying to emphasise in selling this deal, and he doesn't really have to sell it because it's done, that it does create the space for the UK government to behave differently, to come up with different policies, to use its powers in a way that wouldn't have been possible when we were still a member state of the EU. Just give me a sense, Helen, where do you think the strongest version of that argument is? What are the things that the UK government can now do that it couldn't do before? I think that this is best understood, ironically, in a way, given everything that's happened since, by going back to the beginning, before Brexit was Brexit, so to speak. So if we go to the the years leading up to Cameron's decision in 2013 to promise a, a referendum, then the ways in which the renegotiations were pursued after the 2015 general election We can see, I think, pretty clearly that there are two issues within Britain's membership that are driving immediate events. I mean, I think that they've got longer term structural causes than that. But the two driver of events are the freedom of movement issue and financial services, regulation of financial services. And and actually, it's the regulation of financial services issue that comes first and, and, and pushes Cameron into that veto that he makes. But it doesn't succeed in what he wants it to do. 
in December 2011. And I think the most obvious thing that leaving the European Union does is that it means that freedom of movement doesn't apply and that the British government can have a, an immigration policy in relation to, or migration policy if you want to call it that, in relation to people coming from the European Union, which wasn't the case whilst Britain was a member. And it's pretty clear that when Cameron started down this path in January 2013, when you look at the Bloomberg speech, there isn't any mention of the freedom of movement issue, but then it becomes central to the renegotiation uh, he attempts. So if you think about it as why has a, a British government, British Conservative government, pursued the path in which it has, it's been pushed into playing a defensive kind of politics around the freedom of movement issue. It isn't necessarily because there was lots of enthusiasm in the upper levels of the Conservative Party amongst people who were long-term critics of British membership of the European Union over this uh, issue, but it's been forced upon it by the by the politics. And so now this Conservative government made it quite clear that it wasn't going to try to uh, keep Britain's membership of the single market in good part because there isn't any way around that freedom of movement issue. But I think the interesting one in the sense of a more sort of positive use of the the power, so to speak, um, the divergence, let's call it that, is really around the city. And the interesting thing there is that this clearly is a trade-off issue because whilst you have people in you know, back in 2011 who were saying, look, there's a real medium to long-term problem for the city here for British financial services being regulated within the European Union when the majority of European Union states are in the in the Eurozone. You've also got a section of the city during the referendum campaign really led by the American investment banks in London who are very unhappy about the about the fact that they are now shut out of equivalence for trading inside the European Union. So I think one question is for Johnson is is how do you make the the defensive side of of Brexit, if you like, and the possibly more transformative side in terms of, and I mean simply by transformative, using the regulatory divergence that is now um, possible, are both of those things achievable at the same time? Because the oddity there is that what you've described is not what we're getting at the moment. He wants to make the case that this is a, it's positive, and a lot of it is just Johnson kind of boosterism. This is UK as a new centre of innovation, a kind of hub of dynamism, it's just going to be get up and go, you know, we can do it our own way with very little detail. When you do get detail, it's it's around things like fishing, you know, there's a kind of Carrie Simons agenda that nasty forms of catching fish will be outlawed. There's very little talk at the moment about the migration issue. And then if this is about the city rather than about industrial strategy, technology and that kind of dynamism agenda it's quite a hard sell so there is a I mean it feels like from what you've said there's a kind of mismatch between the rhetoric and the reality Johnson wants to pitch it as something what he can't say is that this is about migration in the city of London so it's it's that much more general Britain can be the hub of this and that and the other even though those are traditional conservative issues in a way money and movement of people he doesn't seem able to say it like that well, I think that in terms of the um, the tech side and the AI side, that actually that that's not so. You know, you, you can see the way in which that fits into aspects of the of the city in terms of you know the direction of financial resources in those sectors and the question of how those sectors are then going to be regulated. But 
I think in terms of the pitch that his rhetorical pitch that he's making, it is because the politics of Brexit, how, if you like, the predicament that Cameron faced turned into the electoral coalition in December 2019 that ensured that Brexit did happen, means that the Conservatives have got to hold together a quite odd coalition now. In in one sense, all political coalitions that are able to win in first-past-the-post majority electoral systems are odd. But clearly that there is some structural divergence, if you like, in in the coalition that's put together traditional Conservative voters, many of them employed in fairly, you know, like prosperous parts of the, the South East with voters in the northeast of England and parts of the, the Midlands where people have been voting Labour for, uh, the seats have been Labour for a, a long time. So in terms of the politics of, of Brexit, there has to be something about rebalancing the British economy in ways that are going to produce, you know, like more jobs from higher level economic activity, higher wages, particularly for non-graduates, in the parts of the of the United Kingdom that aren't the southeast, and this has got to be done in a way that, in terms of the union, doesn't look like Johnson's privileging the interests of the Midlands and the Northeast over Scotland. So, let's come onto the union in a second. Just to put the question bluntly, so no deal is now off the table. We have a deal. Um, there is the possibility of divergence. It, it allows the possibility of divergence, and then insofar as I can understand it, it leaves open the question of how both sides might respond if the divergence is significant, whether that's around regulatory standards or level playing field and state aid and so on. Does this deal significantly increase the freedom of manoeuvre, leaving aside the rhetoric, for a Conservative government to level up, do you think? Or is it actually, relatively speaking, an irrelevance to that? I don't think there's an irrelevance, but I think that it means that the, the terms of the agreement mean that there will be ongoing choices that have to be made about how far the divergence can go without putting in jeopardy the free trade and goods agreement. So in that sense, I think it's best thought of as managed divergence that basically, from the British point of view at least, plays for time in terms of deciding what the the trade-offs that might be made between the different advantages and disadvantages economically of Brexit are. And that's going to be an ongoing difficulty, I think, for the Conservative government, indeed for any government. And the union then complicates that because obviously any sort of divergence that does put the trade agreement in jeopardy then would have, I think, make the issue of managing Scottish consent to the union even more difficult than it already is. Because that touches on something that, so there's one thing that's always slightly riled me around some of the rhetoric that is used to defend Brexit as a broad approach to politics. And there's been quite a lot of it recently, post the deal, which is the idea that whatever else you might say about it, it's a kind of bracing event, because it forces either the British government or the British people to face up to our choices. It has that kind of for some people that feel about it, that it's a clarifying thing and that we'd got too sort of confused and knotted in our politics. And 
particularly for those people who think it had become too easy to blame the European Union for this and that. And now we're kind of standing on our own feet and we have to take responsibility for our own choices, whether those are choices made at the ballot box or made by governments. And the reason that line of argument always slightly riles me is partly for the reasons we just said. It doesn't seem to me to be clarifying at all. There still seems to me to be quite a significant mismatch, a kind of reticence on the part of the government to spell out what the real advantages are because they don't quite work electorally or politically. And then, Helen, you're probably going to think this is wildly overblown. That kind of politics or that kind of political argument always reminds me a bit of the outbreak of the First World War, just because British politics was pretty knotted back then too. And then there was that feeling in August 1914 that this is a great clarifying event. At least now we kind of, we can put away childish things and we can face up to our real responsibilities and I just always have that kind of underlying nagging sense that if you have a knotted politics which we do and we'll come on to the union in a second then thinking that some event which hasn't got an obvious or at least easily articulated purpose in its own terms and I think the first world war fits into that too the rhetoric didn't quite match the reality will somehow unknot it rather than it being the other way around, that the knotted politics will carry through to this event, which makes it a a pretty precarious and risky thing to do. That nagging feeling I've had about Brexit, I still have it. You don't have to respond to that. No, I think, no, that is interesting because I think... You can respond. (laughs) I think that it all really depends upon the way in which Brexit is conceived as as a political moment and as a... Uh, sort of political developments that led to the political moment and I mean by the the political moment in this case the actual act of leaving the European Union and it seems to me that a lot of the sort of language around Brexit goes wrong because it doesn't really start from what European Union membership entailed for any member state and it doesn't really start from the fact that the European Union membership the European Union itself, let's say, is above all a, a legal and a and a constitutional order, and that in leaving the the European Union, we've left a constitutional order behind, and we are in some sense going back to the one that we had before we joined the European Union, except for the fact that we can't go back to that because during the time of our membership, but then our constitution was changed in some fairly fundamental ways over matters, including the union that had nothing to do with the European Union um, membership, even though the politics that then flowed from that, in the case of Scotland, interacted very strongly with European Union membership. So the very first thing that has to, to happen in this new constitutional moment for Britain is work out what the constitutional order is what it can be and again you know that gets us straight back into the into the union question so it seems to me that quite a lot of the language and the clay I think that the sort of language of the deal and all that was very unhelpful in this respect sort of took away from just actually what a momentous structural change leaving the the European Union is now obviously there's an line of argument that then comes back to that that said well this was done you know like something that's this significant shouldn't have been done so easily. I think in some sense it wasn't really done easily in the end because 
the referendum didn't turn out to be the deciding point. It took until three and a half years later for that to be decided at the December 2019 general election. But at the same time, the first thing that has to be achieved by Brexit is simply settling the constitutional conditions in which democratic politics in the United Kingdom can take place, recognising that in leaving the European Union, the question of the union, the UK union, has been fundamentally changed because the prospects of what Scottish independence might mean are now very different than what they would have meant if we were still in the European Union. So I suppose you could say, I mean, there's two different ways it could be clarifying. So it could be clarifying in the sense that it does at least bring to the surface what is the structural problem. It doesn't seem to me that it's clarifying and that we're any closer to knowing what that solution would be and that the ways in which our politics is knotted and convoluted and really complicated at the moment. Nothing to me, about either leaving the European Union or achieving the deal makes it less complicated. So yes, it does. And it has, in a sense, shown us the thing that we need to do and we probably needed to do anyway, because as you said, we'd got into a complicated constitutional arrangement, partly constrained by EU membership, but partly having nothing to do with EU membership. And now there is an opportunity. I can completely see that. I don't think we're any better placed to seize that opportunity than we were. And I suspect the next three or four years, and let's talk about Scotland now, and indeed Northern Ireland, the next three or four years, they're not going to be clarifying in this respect, but they are going to make it absolutely clear to us that there is a fundamental problem. So let's actually, let's do Northern Ireland first briefly. And we're going to spend a lot more time on talking politics this year, talking about these things in significantly greater both detail and I hope historical depth. But is it at least possible that the place where the difference that the deal has made will be most tangible and to some people visible is Northern Ireland because you know it'll take time but it seems to me there's almost bound to be a growing sense that Northern Ireland is a separate part of the United Kingdom and that there are both opportunities and risks for the government in Dublin in trying to emphasize the ways in which this deal brings Northern Ireland closer to the Republic of Ireland on regulatory and other matters and maybe even some financial matters, and that there is a gap that slowly, even if the border is in the Irish Sea, slowly will open up between Northern Ireland and the rest of the Union. And not in the short term, but maybe in the medium term, this has to lead to acute political dilemmas. No, I mean, I I think... That's (laughs) That's a long question and a short (laughs) one. That's absolutely... um, That's absolutely correct. And I think that what we've seen over the the course of Brexit since the the referendum took place is a a situation where, in terms of whether Brexit was going to happen or not, that Northern Ireland got subsumed in in UK politics, I'm not talking about Irish politics here, into that. It became part of the means by which those who wanted to stop Brexit happening were able to, to make their case. And obviously, the whole fate of Theresa May's, the the withdrawal agreement that Theresa May's government negotiated rested on that Northern Irish question via the backstop. And that is why she was unable to get enough members of her own party in Parliament to to vote for the agreement that her government had negotiated. I think that with the fact that the United Kingdom has left the European Union being now settled, the Northern Irish question very much becomes within the UK about the position of Northern Ireland within the Union and 
the the possibly growing pressures in some quarters anyway for Irish unification. And I, I don't think there's any escape in the UK's politics from the Northern Irish question over the next 10 years or so. And that's the time frame you'd put on it 10 years rather than say two or three, because it's it's got to intersect with the question about Scottish independence. I mean, they, you know, they, these things have to somehow get, again, more knotted than they already have been. They must do, surely. Yeah, I mean, I think that the Scottish question and the and the Northern Irish question do interact, and and also that they interact not just in terms of the fact that what happens with Scotland will have knock on consequences, but so far as the the Scottish question is in part about whether there can still be, whether there's still a sufficient sense of of British identity that can that can legitimate the UK um, Union that has particular consequences, particular purchase for the Northern Irish question, because there the identity has to be British. So if Britishness isn't going to do the work um, where the Anglo-Scottish Union is concerned, that it's not strong enough, that has to have political consequences in Northern Ireland, leaving aside all the other ways in which the questions interact with each other. Just before we started talking, I was reading Matthew Paris in The Times this morning, and he made the point that there's a sort of shorthand in relation to the pandemic and the role of the different devolved governments in talking about the UK as the four nations and the, the, the governments or the administrations of the four nations. And as he says, since when was Northern Ireland a nation? If Northern Ireland is a nation, then we're in a totally different world. I know. I've been thinking the same the same thing, which is partly what made me to th- sort of the thoughts that led me to the last comment that I made. It's, it's regularly used as four nations shorthand and it just doesn't make any sense at all. One more question about Scotland. You can give a short answer or a long answer. Do you think the achievement of a deal, leaving aside the, the details of it, but the fact there's a deal, there hasn't been the disruption that was feared, you know, the worst case no deal scenarios are now you know, a path not taken. The fact that this deal exists and therefore as and when we get, and I think we both feel that we will at some point get to the really acute politics of a second Scottish independence referendum, the case that the SNP has to make, is it harder to make it now that there's a deal? I think it's absolutely harder to make it now that the United Kingdom's left the European Union because if the Scottish government were to win an independence referendum and then wanted to join the European Union, even leaving aside the issues to do with the EU that I think make that actually quite difficult, but even if they were surpassed, it's just obviously a very different question, Scotland joining a European Union, which the rest of the United Kingdom isn't part of. I think in terms of the the trade agreement, then I do think it doesn't make winning the argument so much more difficult internally, I mean, within Scotland for the SNP. But what I do think is, is that in terms of the Conservative government at Westminster, then securing a trade agreement in some sense, the strongest motivation for that and not deciding to take the risks of no deal was the problem that no deal would have caused for support for the union in Scotland, that Brexit by itself is bad enough in terms of winning a referendum, but Brexit plus no deal would have, plus Johnson still being prime minister if and when the referendum occurred would make that very difficult. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So I don't quite know how to do the um, segue into Georgia, except you used a line earlier, which I really liked. I think it could become a tagline for us. I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but you said something like under first-past-the-post systems, all electoral coalitions are pretty odd. And um, that's my way into Georgia. So for once, and so two things that are different about this morning after the night before, I did sleep last night. I wasn't lying awake worrying about the Georgia Senate results. Did you sleep? I assume you weren't staying up watching CNN. No, I certainly did sleep. <laughs> yeah, so it didn't feel like everything was hanging on it, though for many people, these results are as consequential as the presidential election. And the other difference is that we're going to call it, um, you know, I thought last night that it would be so close that we wouldn't know, but it looks you know, very, very likely that the Democrats have won both the Georgia Senate seats. One is yet to be called, that's the Ossoff one, but he's ahead now and looking at the New York Times, the probabilities of him losing that seat are very, very small. I said losing it, not winning it. So the thing that seemed unlikely, I think, when we last talked about it, seemed slightly odds against has happened, that the Democrats have control of the Senate. It's an incredibly finely balanced control. I mean, people who think that it just means great, they can do what they want. It is 50-50. And then Kamala Harris is the deciding vote. I want to ask you in a second about the implications of this for Biden. And again, we're going to talk much more about this in coming weeks, particularly as we get to the inauguration, and we're going to talk to Gary Gerstle and others. But just as a kind of scene setter, before we get to that, We've talked a bit about Georgia as this sort of new emblematic state in American politics. It's the one that in the presidential election moved furthest. Of course, Trump refuses to accept that it moved, but it did. If you look at the results last night, two things stand out and they tell two very different stories. One of which is, here is the beginning of this remarkable, potentially new coalition for the Democratic Party built around states that had been fairly strongly Southern Republican states using demographic shifts, movement of people to suburbs, getting the vote out, a real mobilization campaign, particularly among African-American voters, that seems to have worked yesterday. And so Georgia has flipped. The other way of reading it is that the margins are so tiny, the scope for arguments that the election result is in some sense not sound, that, you know, the elections have been stolen, that these tiny, I don't know how much Ossoff's going to win by, it's going to be a bit more than it looks like at the moment. But these are such fine margins that Georgia looks emblematic of American politics, not because it marks this structural shift in the coalitions, but because it is this glimpse of a future in which everything is contested forever. Which one do you see it as? I actually see it as slightly more the first than the second, I should say, though the second has a lot of legs left in it. A lot depends on Donald Trump and the hold he has over the Republican Party, but which of them is it for you? I mean, obviously it's both, but... (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) I think that one thing that's striking is is if if you look at what's been happening in the US Congress, that you're seeing much more of that 
tightness in American politics in terms of it being a you know a fairly not completely evenly divided country because obviously there's a great deal of regional variation in that but a certain kind of impasse what you're describing in the in the second scenario that's been playing out you know like quite a lot particularly around the senate you know so the days in which which the democrats for a long time were the dominant party you know in the senate even when republicans were winning presidential elections fairly easily you know are gone and i think I'm right in saying, isn't it? Is it this is will be the the second time then in twenty years that a Senate election in a presidential year will have produced essentially a tie in the Senate with the vice president being the casting vote because that's what happened after the two thousand presidential election. And you would think, in principle, that if you've got shifting demographics in in certain states that you would be moving away into something that looks away from that impasse. But at the same time, as we've got, say, Georgia becoming a, a swing state, it looks like Ohio stopped becoming a, a swing state. And I think that what this is going to mean in part is, is there's going to be a contest over the next, I'm not going to put any time period on it, but in the next years in in American politics about what the states are. You can already see that, I think, in terms of, activism around statehood for for Washington DC so precisely because the politics is so close it looks to me like we're going to see quite a lot of contest about the actual if you like nature of state representation who again the basic question of what are the states who are the states and can that be changed in ways that would give and it would in practice be the democrats an advantage in this tight politics in the in the Senate. So I think that situation in which a state like Georgia is moved in the direction in which it has and it sort of further produces the impasse where the politics of the Senate is concerned in particular. And of course, Democrats would say it's not an even evenly divided country, particularly not in the Senate because of the structure of the Senate and the fact that so many states get two senators on the basis of very small proportions of the national population and that therefore there is a huge imbalance that you know the figure that's often quoted that is it 30 percent of um, Americans vote for 70 percent of senators yeah and the fact that the demographics have changed there such that that proportional imbalance in terms of the relationship between population and the two senator per state principle is actually getting worse in the sense of when I, when I say getting worse, moving further in the direction of the advantage of the, the smaller population states over the larger population states. And obviously that is a fairly fundamental political question because it's determining who gets to, who gets to decide in the Senate. So more evenness in the Senate is also going to produce more contest over the two senators per state principle, as well as the, what are the states principle. And does the fact that the Democrats now, by a knife edge, an absolute knife edge, control both the presidency and both houses of Congress mean that there is any possibility you think of of changing this? Because there's there's kind of two questions for Biden here or for the Biden administration. One is, is it actually possible on this basis to think about, let's call it structural change? I don't want to call it changing the rules of the game, because once you seem to be changing the rules of the game, it just becomes so toxic. But probably not straightforward constitutional change, but at least looking at changing how American democracy works, because there are lots of problems with American democracy, not just these kind of demographic 
structural imbalances, but gerrymandering, the role of money, and so on. So there's a question about whether it could be done. And then there's a question about whether it would be worth expending political capital on getting it done, given just how hard that would be, just how fine the margins are. And having 50 senators does not guarantee they're going to vote as a bloc. But on the other hand, on some of the other issues, Democrats are probably more divided than they are on this issue. I mean, Democrats are probably more united on the question of just how biased the system is against them than they are, for instance, on some of the questions around a Green New Deal. And so it may be that actually it is worth expending political capital on this. I, d- I have no idea. And we, we, we need to talk to other people about it. And you know, this is going to be a huge issue in American politics. But there is an opportunity, at least potentially here, for Biden to decide what he wants to use this now Senate, not majority, but ability to get stuff through the Senate for. Is it conceivable he might decide to use it for changing how American democracy works rather than for, say, economic or social purposes? I think it's possible, though, as we know, um, things that involve actually changing the Constitution are pretty difficult in uh, American politics, and they can't be secured only by legislative majorities. And they involve the states, so we're back to square one, but yeah. Um, I think the big question for Biden is really probably what can be achieved via legislation in two years, because with a big caveat that I'll, I'll come to, you would expect that in midterm elections, there will be a real possibility in 2022 that the Democrats would lose control of both the Senate and the House because their majority in the House was reduced in November. And then this would be on a knife edge and usually presidents in their first term lose seats in congressional elections, often lose quite a lot of seats in midterm congressional elections so you could say well he assumes that that would happen and that you can see what can be done in two years or you try to stop it happening and you try to govern cautiously with the aim of of trying to hold on to that legislative majority such as it such as it is i think the caveat though is is that the republican party is now you know very divided um, between let's call it its trump faction and its McConnell faction or its non-Trump faction and what is going to happen to it over the next two two years and whether it's going to be in a position to make the kind of gains that you would expect the opposition party to do in midterm elections, particularly when the, the, the margins are so narrow in the Congress. That still, it seems to me, a, you know, like a very open question and it's got to be possible that Trump will carry on causing the Republicans very real problems because there's clearly a part of the Republican voting coalition that is more comfortable with what Trump has been offering them than with what going back to the party, let's say, of Mitt Romney and people like him are going to offer. I think it's almost certain that Trump's going to continue to cause them problems. Um, and it, it seems from the early results that all these elections, we say this so many times, are turnout elections primarily. It's not about flipping voters from one side to the other. Turnout does seem to have been down a bit in the places that voted quite strongly for Trump, even in November. We'll see. Let's not talk about Trump. I want to ask you a different question, which is, is it possible, this might sound sort of counterintuitive, but is it possible that actually Biden is slightly disadvantaged by this result in the sense that one thing the Republican Party seems to have been good at, it was very good at during the Obama years, is 
voting in Congress as a block against an incumbent Democratic president. If it had been 51-49, if the Republicans had held on to one of these Georgia seats in the Senate, is it possible that that would have allowed Biden at least to try and pick off a few Republicans, Romney or whoever? Whereas now, if stuff is going to be sort of railroaded through the Senate with Kamala Harris being the deciding vote, it makes it more likely that the 50 Republican senators will hold together. That Because in a sense, all they're being asked to do is just operate as a block, as a kind of resistance to what they could then dress up as a potentially a radical agenda or a leftist agenda or a communist agenda or whatever they want to call it. And that Biden was presumably thinking that he was going to do the politics of to get stuff through the Senate, having to one by one, maybe even you know get them in the room individually, try and pick off Republican senators. And in a way, that's now going to be harder. And his task instead is to hold his party together. And it's not going to be easy for anything because he can't even afford to lose one senator if the Republicans decide 50 will always vote as a block. And they might well do under these conditions, particularly with midterms coming up in two years. Yeah, I mean, I think that there there is one immediate payoff to the Democrats being able to, with the casting vote, um, win votes in the Senate. And that is, is the ability to confirm those nominations for executive office that depend on the Senate's consent. And that a situation in which the Republicans still controlled um, the Senate would constrain who could be nominated for various positions. So I think that that is important in terms of the, the gains that Biden makes from this. But beyond that, I I agree with you in that actually the problem of of holding the Democratic senators together is going to be pretty difficult, particularly if you look at the voting record of someone like Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator for West Virginia, which is clearly at presidential level um, a quite strong um, Republican state. And the onus is going to be on um, Biden to use the Senate majority and to the extent that he is unable um, to do that, that is going to be look like his problem rather than one that can be blamed on, so easily anyway, blamed on an instructionist Republican majority. Right. Lastly, the pandemic. Oh, there's a lot going on. So I just really have one either thing to say or question. You can interpret it however you like. So here we are back in lockdown. If you'd said to us, I know this is a cliche, everyone's saying this at the moment, but if you'd said to us in March where we had to move this podcast online, that we'd still be doing it like this at the start of 2021 and actually, in a way, would be just as constrained as we were then. I would have thought that that was a really worst-case scenario. But here we are, lockdown again in the UK, and it feels very familiar. But there is a, a, there's a huge political difference, it seems to me, which is that the politics has completely shifted in one respect because this is now the politics of the vaccine. And... The question of how the government would be held to account, what it could be blamed for through 2020 as it chopped and changed and fumbled its schools policy and messed up this and gave conflicting messages on that, but more or less kept the British people on side. We did on the whole. I say we, we, the British people did on the whole do what was asked of us. And there wasn't widespread civil disobedience or anything like that. There was a lot of grumbling and discontent. But even if you look at the polls, the Conservative 
share of polling has held up relatively well. If there were an election tomorrow, we would have a probably a hung parliament. It looks like on the most recent poll, Boris Johnson would lose his seat. Well, so what? Nothing massively shifted. But now we're in the phase of this where it's not about you know the government trying to deal with some act of God and doing its best, which isn't great, but you know who can blame them, to the politics of delivery, as Tony Blair would say, the great deliverologist, and indeed Tony Blair's intervention. Tony Blair was one of the first people who called for a shift from using the Pfizer vaccine for two doses to start dosing as many people as possible once. And actually the government, I don't think they followed Blair exactly, but they certainly did it relatively soon after Blair made that intervention. So we're now in the politics of delivery. And the politics of delivery is in many ways much simpler in that the government, when it screws it up, is to blame. There's a big upside here for the government, maybe by maybe early March, mid-March, if the vaccination program has been really successful, we will be at the end of this or near the end of it with all sorts of other consequences to come. But if they mess this one up, surely they really then are in trouble. That's what this question is. Any question that has surely in it isn't really, <laughs> really a question. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. If you look at the, the politics of where we are now, I would say that several things stand out. The first of them is is what you've just said is the, uh, in terms of this is the, the politics of delivery, though I would say it's, it's also still the politics of supply chains and issues about how quickly the vaccines can be manufactured, where they're, they're manufactured, and that, that that aspect of it hasn't actually gone away. And... I think from the point of view of the way in which the politics of the of COVID is intersected over 2020 with the politics of Brexit, that for the first time, perhaps, the government's been in a position where it can sort of tell a, a positive story about Brexit in relation to that, because whatever problems that at the moment that there are in the UK with the, the, the politics of delivering the vaccine, they look worse in the European Union collectively and in individual states, particularly, I think, say the comparison with with France. So I think that you can say that the government has got a chance. I mean, I, I was going to say to succeed, but I'm sure I'm not sure that anything at the moment quite is straightforward success. But to do much better in 2021, in a comparative sense, and it looks like it did in 2020, in a in a comparative sense. I think, though, that the the other thing that happened with this lockdown that changes where we are from, like, say, the autumn is that the the politics of education and the issue of the relationship between education and the the pandemic has changed to the you know the government's disadvantage in this sense. In that, clearly, when we got to the the summer, there was a great deal of frustration within the government that schools did not go back at scale, if you like, in the way in which the government had hoped. And a lot of the government's political credibility, I think, was invested in trying to ensure that when, when the autumn came, when when September came, that schools would go back. And they succeeded in that. And so and through the sort of the partial lockdown, if that's what we could describe, that we had in in November, schools were kept open. So in that sense, through the autumn, the government was able to pursue a strategy where it was simultaneously attaching importance to the health risks and it was attaching importance to the educational risks. And what it's had to do with this lockdown where schools are shut again with no 
immediate prospect of them opening. And we know it's a lot easier to get schools closed and judging from past experience and to get them open again is, is that it's had to sacrifice its educational hopes. It's had to put everything into containing the risk, I should say, to the health service. And so I think how the politics of schools going back and when people start perceiving that there's a sufficient success with the vaccine, reducing the threat to the NHS to allow it to happen again will be contested. And then I think the government will be back to some of the problems that it had um, last summer around schools. Plus, of course, the question of exams. And one other thing that you've often mentioned, and this lockdown, in a sense, is another delay to a kind of reckoning, which is the the unemployment issue in, in British politics, because this lockdown, again, means that the focus, not just the political focus, but the experience of people in their everyday lives is on you know, constraints, people just trying to abide by the rules and get by. Whereas that point that you have often pointed out is coming, which is, you know, there is going to be a shakeout here in relation to unemployment, both patterns of employment, but also just the raw numbers. And that's sort of been put on hold by this. And in a sense, it might also be worse when it finally comes. And that's coming in the summer and the autumn too. Absolutely. And I think you you could already start to see some of the consequences taking shape last autumn where people who'd been furloughed um, initially and the companies weren't able actually to keep going and became unemployed. And the question of how, of when, whether it's done in one go or by degrees to switch off support to companies where effectively you know, the state has acted in many cases, though far from all cases, as a payer of last resort for people's wages and salaries it has got to come to a, a head at some point. And some point, presumably in the, the government's optimistic scenario, sometime in the spring. And there will be, I think, you know, a considerable pressure actually to keep some kind of support structure going once the lockdown restrictions are, are lifted, because otherwise it's going to be a pretty big employment shock. And that, that is going to then require the state still, the government still to spend considerable amounts of resources you know, on supporting people's material existence so there are just only really really difficult choices ahead and the politics of that is going to be is going to be pretty difficult because if you think of it as what are the the issues that really constrain what governments can do health has been shown very much so through this pandemic to be one of them and, and employment is another and going back to the the politics of high unemployment is just deeply unpalatable for any british political party And to connect this back to where we started, something else I've long felt about Brexit is that the most visible way in which a government that owned Brexit could show the payoff would be nothing that it could do, but things going wrong in Europe. And I've also been thinking, just reading about the French vaccination programme. I mean, I was reading again this morning. I almost can't believe this is true, but maybe it is true that one of the reasons that Macron is said by his opponents to have been holding back is because he wants a French vaccine to come on stream so that, that French people can be inoculated by French innovation, which is like a kind of parody of Gaulism and doesn't sound to me like pretty smart politics. But it could go, you know, things could go wrong in Europe. And if things do go wrong in Europe, it's relatively easy for a British government to say, well, thank God we're not part of that. And that must also at least potentially be true of the medium-term consequences of COVID for 
European economies, including some, you know, some states are going to suffer much more than others, I think almost inevitably. We put out over Christmas a couple of talks I did, and one was about the relationship between the politics of COVID and the politics of climate change. And not in that talk, but in the discussion afterwards, a group of people were responding, and one of them was Mark Leonard, and he used this phrase that I really like, which is long political COVID. The idea that that there is a, a sort of weird, sometimes a weird analogy between the politics of COVID and actually how it affects individuals health-wise. And almost certainly, I think it's going to be the case that some countries are going to suffer from long political COVID in the sense that the consequences are going to be really bad and they're going to keep popping up in unexpected ways. These kind of symptoms that you thought you'd got rid of will suddenly come roaring back and you're back on your sickbed again. And it seems to me almost certainly true that some European member states are going to suffer from long political COVID, at which point I think it won't be hard for a British government to say, well, at least we're not part of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that the context in, in the European Union for this is actually that you know, like back in the spring, a, a huge gamble was made. The EU does not have competence in um, in health. It's not it's something that the member states retain sovereignty over, to use that um, language. Yet when it came to procurement of vaccines, then that became a, a European Union level commitment without there being essentially either an authority structure for decision making that had been agreed around that or without a whole policy making apparatus around it at the at the European level. So you've got two different things going on with the European Union countries is the first is is the injection of the EU into the, the politics of health. And then at the same time you've got the the way that the consequences of the decisions that the, the Commission made about procurement playing out in the politics of different member states. And if you take Germany, although the, the, the German vaccination programmes got off to a lot better start than the, the French one has, it's clearly causing deep divisions within the grand coalition between the, the Christian Democrats and the, the Social Democrats. I mean, just in terms of the, the things that have gone on the last couple of days in terms of spats within that coalition and a letter that's gone from the SPD to the, to the from the Social Democrats to the the Christian Democrats is is that this has got the ability to tear that coalition I'm apart. I'm not saying that it will necessarily will. I'm saying that there is a, a a political contest now going on within the German government itself about what the ramifications of injecting the European Union into the procurement of the the vaccine and and the more difficult the vaccination programs become and I, and, I, and I think that they're going to be difficult for all countries in Europe, including um, Britain in, in different ways. But the fact that in the British case, the British government is the one that's taken the decisions and is in that sense accountable for the decisions that are then made is different than the situation in which the EU has been injected into what in terms of delivery is still going to be done at the, the nation state level. And it's not just about Britain and Europe. So it's also true. I, I discovered again this morning that the Indonesian government is the first one that has decided to use the vaccines that it has to vaccinate young people, not old people, on the grounds that it would be better to create a herd immunity shield than to let young people carry on infecting each other and having to be kept at home. There is so much more that we could talk about, and we are going to talk about it. We are going to talk a lot more about American politics as we come up to the inauguration of Joe Biden with his now hold on the Senate, we assume, 
We're going to be talking a lot more about the politics of COVID. We're going to be talking a lot more about the implications of the Brexit deal economically and politically. And we are going to be focusing over the next few months in particular on the fate of the Union, not the four nations of the UK, but what will happen to the United Kingdom this year and beyond. Two more quick announcements to make, and we will give you more details of this soon. We know that some people have told us that they would like to be able to listen to Talking Politics ad-free, and so we're going to make that option available, and we will tell you in a couple of weeks a simple way in which you can sign up for ad-free Talking Politics. And at the beginning of February, we're going to be launching a new series of the History of Ideas. That's going to be me talking about some classic books from the history of political thinking that we hope illuminate the present. I'm going to be starting with Rousseau on inequality. And we're going to tell you soon about the different ways in which you can experience that. Do join us for everything through this year. It's going to be a very interesting one. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. I know somebody else is touching their mic a lot. I don't know if it was you or Helen, but my don't touch mics. Brushing. Okay. Or wire. <clears throat> okay. right. yeah, let me just check my way up and where my... I'm going to move... Hang on a minute. I'm just going to move one of them so that yeah, not dragging down onto the... around my knee. Yes. And no knee jiggling. <laughs> of course, once you move one thing, it has systemic consequences. Systemic. <laughs> That's a good line. That could be our catchphrase for this year, I think. Oh, don't. <laughs> it's true, though. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.